guests to express a sacred story and to extend a common table that animate life by love. A primary expression of our sacred story is the weekly sermon. If our sermons inspire you to ponder the sacred, to consider the mystery and love of God, and to live bountifully, would you consider supporting our work? You can donate easily and securely at our website, pearlchurch.org, or follow the link in the podcast notes. Thank you for partnering with us in expressing this sacred story. Present God, help us to walk in wonder and gratitude as we live out our lives before you, in whom all things move and breathe and have their being. Amen. And please be seated. Four years and eight months ago, we began dealing with the difficulty of a president who preferred cynicism marginalization, othering, and violence as means to leading our country. 18 months ago, we began dealing with COVID-19 and the havoc it's wreaked on our world and on our individual lives. 15 months ago, we began newly waking to white supremacy and systemic racism in our country. In the midst of it all, we've marched and screamed and voted and scoured for toilet paper. Remember that? We sewed masks, we've choked on smoke, we've experienced power outages and felt perhaps more than ever before at the end of ourselves. What month is it? What season is it? What year is it? Where am I? What is all of this? Can I get an amen? Amen. We have been beaten, bruised, and bewildered. Many of us feel untethered. There's a growing unrest inside of many of us. We're tired, exhausted, and let's just be honest, crankiness is just below the surface, right? Of course, in moments like these, we're able to learn a lot about ourselves. We have learned that we are capable of more than we thought. We have learned that we are willing to sacrifice many things for the greater good. And if I'm being honest about my own journey, I've learned that I'm surprised by many of the feelings, thoughts, and reactions that swirl around inside of me. What month is it? What season is it? What year is it? Where am I? What is this? Perhaps a more important question is, what am I? Who am I? And making this very important question into a corporate question, I think it may be helpful for us to ask, who are we? And by we, I mean Pearl Church. Who is Pearl Church in the midst of all of this stuff that's been swirling around in our lives and in this world? In the midst of good and bad and health and sickness and peace and war and dreams and nightmares, in the midst of all of the life and all of the tragic death, who is Pearl Church? Why are we a part of this community? Of course, this question gets at character. Character refers to essential quality. I like to think of the word essence. Character refers to the essence of a thing, of a person, of an organization. And at Pearl, our character is articulated by our values. If you've been at Pearl for a while, you know that our rhythms describe what we're doing as a church. And what we're doing is we're cultivating a sacred story and a common table that animate our lives by love. 
That's what we exist to do. But then there are our values. Our values articulate the fundamental elements of our essence and character. And at Pearl, we have six values. Gratitude, integration, inclusion, peace, renewal, and transformation. Over the last year, the oversight team has been considering a seventh value, equity, uh, which we'll actually talk about in a few weeks. But put simply, I love, I love these words. I find that these values have the ability to tether me to the kind of life that I desire to live, even when the life I live is not the life that I want, despite whatever is happening in my life. And in light of all that we've been facing, it's my sincere hope that these values and this sermon series on values can reground and retether us. It's my sincere hope that these values can cast an elevated vision for the kind of life that we desire to embody, no matter what we face as a community. Because you see, life right now is like a ship riding out on this, on this wild storm. And we risk, and I think that we found ourselves being tossed to and fro without any sight and end. And yet, below that surface, underneath, in the depths, at the, at the soul level, at the soul level of who we want to be despite it all, is the clear and steady guidance of our values, which reflect the life of Jesus, who invites us with his all-famous words, come, follow, after me. And so to begin this morning, we'll consider our first value, which is gratitude. And I don't know about you, but it can be hard, especially in days like these, to feel a deep sense of gratitude as we go about our lives in this world. About this value, we write, Jesus lived life in surrender and gratitude before the one in whom he moved and breathed and had his being. We therefore value this posture of living in humble surrender, in joyful gratitude, before the ground of our being. As a way to talk about gratitude, I think it may be helpful to talk about uh, these two Christian words or experiences, Eucharist and worship. These are religious words, right? These are very Christian words. And to be even more specific, they are for most of us church words. These are words that we say in church. Uh, these are words that we do in church. But here's the thing, Eucharist and worship, well, these are religious words, yes, but they're religious words that, that are attempting to name deeply human experiences that travel much farther than your local church. I'd like to start with Eucharist. The story that contextualizes Eucharist is found in Matthew chapter 26, Mark chapter 14, Luke chapter 22. It's the pinnacle, the climactic moment in each of these books and in Jesus' ministry. He's about to be betrayed and handed over to Pilate and crucified on a cross before he resurrects from the dead. But just before this happens, we find Jesus gathered around a table celebrating the Passover meal with his students. And we're told that he gives thanks and breaks bread saying, this is my body broken for you. Then he pours wine and he says, this is my blood poured out for you. And then he offers these concluding words, do this in remembrance of me. And so to this day, followers of Jesus consume bread and drink wine in remembrance of Jesus whose body was broken and blood was shed. And we call this experience Eucharist. In Greek, the word for giving thanks is eucharistesos, uh, which comes from the word eucharisteo, which literally means to give thanks. 
Eucharisteo sounds familiar to us because from that word, we get the word Eucharist. And it's for this reason that Eucharist is sometimes called a Thanksgiving meal because during this meal, Jesus gave thanks. But but here's the thing. This isn't the only time that Jesus gave this kind of thanks. It wasn't just that last supper at Passover just before he was crucified and died and resurrected. Jesus gives thanks over and over and over throughout the Gospels. A few examples. Matthew chapter 15. He's feeding the 4,000. He took seven loaves and the fish, and after giving thanks, Eucharistesos, he broke them and gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds. John chapter 6, feeding the 5,000. Jesus took the loaves, and when he'd given thanks, Eucharistesos, he distributed them to those who were seated. In John chapter 11, that incredible story where Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, we read, so they took away the stone and Jesus looked upward and said, Father, I thank you, Eucharistesos, for having heard me. So over and over and over again, Jesus is moved to give God thanks. But you see, Jesus isn't the only one using this word outside of the Eucharistic meal. Luke chapter 17, Jesus heals the leper, and the now healed leper prostrated himself at Jesus' feet and thanked, Eucharistesos, thanked Jesus. And to be clear, he, the now healed leper, was not a Jew, but a Samaritan. And in Acts chapter 28, Paul finally makes it to Rome, where he's been trying to get after this very long journey. And we read, the believers from there, when they heard of us, came as far as the forum of Appius and the three taverns to meet us. On seeing them, Paul thanked God, Eucharistesos, and he took courage. So Jesus, at the Last Supper, feeding the masses in Lazarus's cave, but also healed lepers and, and praying Pharisees and thankful for making it to Rome, Paul's are all directing moments of gratitude to God. And truly, this is what Eucharist means. You, in Greek, means well or good, and charis means favor or grace. And so when good grace or good favor moves us to say something like praise God or thank the Lord or oh good, or whatever words come out of you in a moment of good favor, we are actually having a Eucharistic moment. That's what the scriptures name it for we Christians. Now, certainly without a doubt, Eucharist in church is a Eucharistic moment. Remembering, realizing in Jesus' broken body and shed blood that God sustains everything and includes everyone and and is drawing the whole world together to feast as one in peace. Certainly, this good favors is to arouse our hearts and to fill us full of gratitude. But there are other Eucharistic moments, aren't there? That meal you're just about to share with dear friends, or that moment after the meal with dear friends, and and you sit back at the table and your belly's full and your soul is filled because of the great conversation that you just had together, or that first paycheck from your new job, or that rested body after waking from a night's sleep, or that pumping heart in your chest after a long run, or that embrace with your partner after being apart for several days, or that song that gives sound and language to the very thing that your soul is feeling in that moment. These experiences of good favor that fill us with gratitude toward God are truly Eucharistic moments. And this whole thing has me thinking a lot about moments. 
because we've had a lot of moments over the last couple of years, haven't we? Not just those moments that we would call divine, but, but those moments that we might call hell, like losing a job or a bad night's sleep or the inability to go for a long run or the loss of a partner or the ache of an unarticulated soul. Could these also be Eucharistic moments? And to answer that, I guess we have to figure out what we mean by good favor. Like, is good favor everything going our way all the time? And when we step outside of that kind of experience, are we now outside of good favor? Is good favor the lack of pain and loss? Or could good favor include simple, almost unnoticeable experiences, such as those that we read about in the book of Ecclesiastes, which involve being simply and wonderfully alive, to blink, to breathe, to feel, to live another day, to have another chance, to grow just a little bit more, to love just a little bit longer. I mean, what if now, what if this moment here, no matter what is happening or going on in our lives, what if this, this, what if this day, September 19th, 2021, this year that we just want to get through as fast as we possibly can, what if this moment is good favor? Why? Because we live? Why? Because we exist? Why? Because we're here? Well, if that were true, then every moment, perhaps even despite the moment, could be a Eucharistic moment. And so Jesus encourages us to pray, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Why? Well, no matter what is happening, we sit here alive, we inhale and we exhale. We feel deeply so many things, don't we? Good and bad, joy and sorrow, gain and loss, all of which serve to remind us that we are not dead, but alive. Wonderfully, terribly, tragically, mysteriously, beautifully alive. And perhaps sometimes we might even come to realize such things and to feel such things so deeply that we find ourselves expressing something audacious like, like my body and my blood belong to you. All that I have and all that I am are yours. My life exists for this moment for truly it is my only moment. And suddenly we're no longer having a Eucharistic moment. No, for our lives become a Eucharistic meal in which gratitude begins to spill out of our own lives and we generously share ourselves with others. And so we write that one of our core values is gratitude. Jesus lived life in surrender and gratitude before the one in whom he moved and breathed and had his being. We therefore value this posture of living in humble surrender and joyful gratitude before the ground of our being. But you see, it's not just Eucharist that names deeply human experiences. I also think the word worship does this as well. The story that contextualizes worship for many Christians today is found in Acts chapter 2. In Acts chapter 2, by the time we get to Acts chapter 2, Jesus has ascended into the sky. The disciples were filled with the Holy Spirit. Peter preached his first sermon. We're told that 3,000 people believed. And we read in chapter 2, beginning in verse 42, these words. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayers. Awe came upon everyone because many wonders and signs were being done. And all who believed were together, and they had all things in common. And they would sell their possessions and goods and distribute the proceeds to all as any had need. 
day by day. As they spent much time together in the temple, they broke bread at home and ate their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having the good will of all the people. And day by day, the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. Now, about these words describing the very first church, there's some disagreement about what worship is. Uh, some would say that it's all worship. The listening to the sermons and the breaking of the bread and the prayers and the awe and the sharing of possessions and the praising God, but that's all worship. But then there are others who would pull out certain aspects and say, well, that's, that part's worship. Like uh, the breaking bread part, that's worship. Or like the praising God part, that's worship. Either way, worship is often understood to be some kind of corporate experience that at least includes singing right? That's, that's worship. And truly, this is a kind of worship. But this whole idea of worship was around way before Acts chapter 2. In the Gospel of John chapter 4, Jesus is at a well having a conversation with a woman about water and marriage and worship, which is to say they're having a conversation about worship, just worship. Because satisfaction from drinking when thirsty and intimacy and relationship when lonely, those things are all about worship. But this thirsty, lonely Samaritan woman doesn't understand it. About worship, she tells Jesus, Samaritans believe that worship is supposed to happen on this mountain, but Jews believe that worship is supposed to happen in Jerusalem. And Jesus says the most audacious thing to her. He says, no, worship can happen at any time, in any place, by any person. You see, it's as though the Samaritan thinks, as do many Christians, that worship is a song or a few songs or an entire service with a few important components that take place under a special roof in a sacred place. But then Jesus comes along and says, no, not really. I mean, yes, sure, that's worship, but you see, the entire world is a temple. And anyone can worship at any time, anywhere which I think rouses a very interesting question. What then is worship? What's worship? Well, in the Greek, the word for worship is proskuneo, which literally means to fall down, to be so overwhelmed in a moment that you just fall flat on your face. A few examples. In Exodus chapter 34, Moses is on top of a quaking mountain. He receives the commandment, and we're told that he falls face down on the ground. He's so overwhelmed. Revelation chapter 5, all of creation is declaring, to him who sits on the throne be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. And the four elders so overwhelmed in the moment say amen, and we're told that they fall down. But you see, not every moment of worship in the Bible is a quaking mountain or a thunderous declaration. There are other not-so-scary moments that rouse the experience of falling over. In Genesis 24, Abraham's servant returns to the land, hoping to find his master's son, a wife. He arrives and meets Rebekah, who he realizes will be his master's son's wife, and that his prayer has been answered and full of gratitude, and by being overwhelmed in this moment, he falls over. 1 Samuel chapter 1, the barren Hannah is promised a child, and we're told that she falls down amazed. In Ruth chapter 2, Ruth is looking for invitation to belonging, to be a part of community, to be cared for. And when she finds favor, she's so overwhelmed that we're told that she falls down. 
on top of a mountain in the midst of a heavenly vision, an answered prayer, the gift of a child, attention and care found in relationship. These are the kinds of moments that bring human beings to their knees, maybe even to their faces, on the ground in surrender to a transcendent, imminent, and present God. And of course, this may happen at church during a service, or in the middle of a song. I mean, Brian helps us sing some great songs. But it can also happen on a hike, or in a conversation, or while reading a poem, or eating a bowl of Cheerios. And so in one of my all-time favorite poems, the great Persian poet Hafiz writes, slipping on my shoes, boiling water, toasting bread, buttering the sky, That should be enough contact with God in one day to make anyone crazy. Isn't that beautiful? Maybe it should say something like waking up, getting out of bed, putting on my shoes, getting in my car, going to the grocery store, putting on my mask, getting some groceries, going home, cooking a meal, swallowing some food, feeling a full belly, getting in my bed, falling asleep. That should be enough contact with God one day to make anyone crazy. And so the psalmist writes, give thanks to the Lord for his steadfast love endures forever. Worship, humble surrender, maybe even falling over before the one in whom we move and breathe and have our being on top of a mountain in the midst of a heavenly vision while we slip on our shoes and boil our water and toast our bread. And Eucharist, overflowing thanksgiving to God who grants us this one life. To blink, to breathe, to feel, to live another day, to have another chance, to grow just a little bit more, to love just a little bit longer. Until we are no longer having a Eucharistic moment, no, for we have become Eucharistic meals. Gratitude spilling out and shared with others. Eucharist and worship, thanksgiving and awe, gratitude for it all, a divine gift. This divine gift can happen anywhere in every moment by every living person. But right now we are in great dire need of Eucharist and worship. Because everything that's coming at us is is threatening to shrivel up our hearts and to make us hard and to make us callous and to focus all of our intention on how everything has changed and all the good has been torn away. And yet maybe this is an invitation to step back and to find joy and goodness in even the smallest things that cannot be taken from us. Perhaps after this sermon, you might find yourself asking, well, if Eucharist and worship are not contained within the church, then why go to church? And I want to affirm that question. In fact, I'd like to say that if gratitude, Eucharist and worship are not found, not aroused in church, then stop going to church. Life is way too short. Each moment is way too divine. But here's the thing. It is altogether easy to get stuck in a rut, to get bogged down in the difficult, to get lost in the beauty, and to lose the transcendent joy of life. And so it pearls our sincere hope that the story we tell and the table we share animate a divine love that fills our lives with abundant gratitude. It is our desire at Pearl to facilitate and to nurture a way of seeing the world, a way of of living in the world that moves you to worship, to Eucharist, 
to unyielding gratitude so that your life overflows in thanksgiving, filling up this world that needs so much goodness right now. And so we write, and we continue to hold to this value of gratitude even in the midst of a pandemic and even in the midst of tired, tired hearts. Jesus lived life in surrender and gratitude before the one in whom he moved and breathed and had his being. At Pearl, we therefore value this posture of living in humble surrender and joyful gratitude before the ground of our being. May it be so, and let us pray. God, thank you for this one life. Thank you for this one day. Thank you for this one moment. Thank you for this one breath. This one breath that reminds us that every moment is a divine gift. I pray and ask that even now you might overflow our hearts with gratitude. Gratitude for the good and the bad, the life and the death. For we live and you sustain our lives. this sermon inspired you to ponder the sacred, to consider the mystery and love of God, and to live bountifully. If you don't already support our work, will you begin today? You can donate easily and securely at our website, pearlchurch.org, or follow the link in the podcast notes. Thank you for partnering with us in expressing this sacred story.